It's time for building the game. Building the game. With Jason and friends. Tabletop game design. With Jason the end of the episode that's when it technically ends hello and welcome to building the game a documentary podcast today is monday august 7th and you're listening to episode 584 as always i am your host jason here today joined by game designer nathan wool hey nathan how's it going hey there i'm going hey. good um this is your first time here but we met like a long time ago i was trying to remember it was probably like at a Gilmore thing, probably yep. like a John Gilmore thing. Yep, it was at yeah John Gilmore running uh, some kind of playtest game yeah, grind day yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And that might have been the one that Gray De- De- Gray Dietrich and I went down to. So yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, we've both been around a bit, <laughs> and uh, and we happen to run into each other at Origins. I haven't seen you for a while, which you know, shockingly, with everything that happens in the world yeah and uh i think the pandemic put a <laughs> stop to some of the get-togethers so right yeah a l- little bit how was your um how was your origins it was great um i i had seven designs that i wanted to get play tested and i basically spent most of the time in the umpub room got all of them mm-hmm. play testing mm-hmm. got really good feedback um so i felt like I, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Um, my co-designer and I had three uh, pitches. They went really mm-hmm. well. Um, Great. So I'm real excited about that. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. We must have literally been like ships passing in the night oh. because I was in the umpub room all the time too, and we ran into each other exactly one time. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing about the umpub room being open as long as it is, is that, uh, you know, you can uh, pretty much be in there anytime. Right, right. Well, I'm glad to hear you got all your stuff tested. That's great. A seven is 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 a lot. So I, that's awesome. You're able to get it all tested. That's fantastic. Yeah, I was really happy about that. Really, really excited about that. I'm usually like, I brought three things. Then I'm like, test one. And like, I don't feel like testing this other one. And I'll like force myself to test a second one. And then afterwards be annoyed at myself for not testing all of them. So so way to be, uh, way to be good at, at getting those tests done. <laughs> I actually, so one of my games I'm really excited about, I tested it and had a couple minor changes and I thought, okay, I have a lot of other stuff to test. And I ended up just, uh, because to get it to fit with some other things, I threw away some of the things that needed to be changed. I just threw them mm-hmm. away. And then like the next day, multiple people came to me and were like, Hey, we really want to play test this game. <laughs> and I, I couldn't play test it with them because I threw away a bunch of stuff. Right. Right. So I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, the um, it's it's always. I mean, even though you couldn't play them because you didn't have the parts anymore, it is a good feeling when people are like, "Hey, you know, we tried this game or we heard about this game. We really want to try this game." Yeah. Um, that is always super awesome and uh, and and very validating when people want to try it. Right. Um, right. So that's cool. Awesome. Awesome. We were talking beforehand. Uh, Gen Con is not something you're doing, uh, and uh, that makes that makes sense to me. I, I every year. I love Gen Con, but it is like, it's, it's, it's a lot. And, um, I don't know. I find myself a lot of times being like, am I going to do this next year? For me, I feel like at this point it's tradition. And even if I don't want to, I kind of have to, cause I've been, I mean, I've missed a few years or two years, I think, cause there was canceled the one year and I didn't go to the online or what I didn't go to the first Gen Con after the pandemic. But other than that, I've been going since Oh four. So, um, and back in 04, like I was like, this is this huge spectacle. Um, and it was nowhere near the size it is now. It's crazy. You know, when you're like, oh, this is so crazy. And now I feel like, you know, Origins, I mean, like, because you go to Origins pretty much every year, you said? Yep. Yes. I try. Yeah. And and like that, I mean, that is, I remember, the, I don't remember the first year I went when it was. It was probably 2013, maybe. And uh, wow, that. Uh, that had had also has changed a lot over the years. It has really, really gotten bigger. Yeah, I've actually there's a convention in Lansing, Michigan. I'm going to on the weekend of August 19th and 20th that I really like. They have a protospiel there too, so I'll be able to playtest some stuff. Um, what convention Dave is Con. that? Dave Con. Are you familiar with that? Oh, I'm not. No, I mean, and I literally live an hour and a half from there, so. <laughs> Yeah. It, it's a really fun convention. This will be the first year since 2019 they've 
they've come back. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah. But, but um, my son and I would go every year. It's his favorite convention. And so it, mm-hmm. used, it used to be the first weekend in September, which is right around his birthday. So that would be, Oh, nice. He and I would kind of go for his birthday. We'd hang out and there's all sorts of, it's, it's a nice local convention, maybe two, 300, maybe 400 people. Um, mm-hmm. Really easy to get games played, play a lot of fun games. And they also have a protospiel area too. And it's really Nice. A lot of people like playing playtesting too. So it's a really fun convention. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll have to check that out at some point. Uh, I'm always looking for the the smaller local stuff can be some of the best places to get testing done and to, you know, hang out with people and and just have fun. Grand Con has always been kind of my home convention for that sort of thing. Have you been to Grand Con? It's a little further up for you. You have. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I might try to go this year as well. I, I like the convention a lot. Yeah, it's it's a good one. Like it's it's a good size to where like you can always find people to test, uh, and you can always find other games. For, you know, to test other people's games, but it's never so busy that it's hard to get stuff done. Right? I mean, like you get to like play test a bunch and then go out to lunch and stuff. It's not like you know constant. And for the publishers that do come, it's not a lot, but for the ones that do, uh, certainly um, there are some good opportunities there because a lot of times they're not super busy. Um, and they're very open to checking out games and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Little conventions for the win. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Um, so you, uh, you, you came up with a topic idea when we talked about having you on, uh, and I'm excited to talk about it. You weren't sure if you, it was exciting or not, but I think it's exciting. So I'm, uh, we'll let the listeners decide, but no, I, I think, um, based on a lot of conversations we've had in our BTG discord, uh, this is right up the alley of a lot of stuff we'd like to talk about. I'm going to let you introduce it. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I want to talk about player aids or reference cards. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to talk about it from the focus of as a designer. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. when I first got into board games and, um, you know, long, long time ago, but if you start browsing bgg and you see that a lot of games as they're coming out one of the first files that gets posted to the game is hey here's a reference card or here's a player aid if the Mm -hmm. game doesn't have one um especially some of the older games and so i think it's you can see from that that it's a very valuable tool for players and i found when designing that it's a very valuable tool for me to have as a designer right right well, I think with the teach, like that, that to me is one of the biggest things I've noticed is when you have a good player aid, uh, it helps a lot with the teach because uh, players can watch it. Like, look, you can be like, you can reference it. Right. Yep. Um, but also there's things where you can say, hey, these are things that do this type of thing. You can see all the icons and what they what they map to right here. Right. And like and you've got your own personal player aid to tell you that. So, yeah, I think as a designer, they're fantastic. When, so with the teach, one of the important things I found is as I'm designing the game, so if, if you know, so I got a game design, I prototype it. While I prototype it, I'll, I'll solo test it a couple times. But when I'm getting ready to take it to my game design group that meets up or when I'm getting ready to play it at an unpub or protospiel or something, one of the things I want to do is get a player aid ready or mm-hmm. uh, put the information on the player board or on the main board or something like that. Reference the turn structure and the different things I want to reference somewhere. And when I start prototyping that the player aid, it helps me in my mind review how I'm going to teach the game. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important that I think some designers miss is as you're prototyping and play testing solo, you should also be play testing in your mind or out loud, how you are going to teach the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That is, I think that is an area where a lot of game designers, myself included, can be really lacking in the teach. You know, um, I've really started now before doing pitches or before doing a play test or like, you know, when I've got a group of friend game designers to be like, hey, listen, I'm going to practice this teach as I do it to you. Like critique me on that. Right. Like tell me what I'm you know, and I, I did one recently and they were like the, the teach took probably twice as long as it needed to. Like it didn't flow the way it could have. And I was like, you're right. And so I kind of sat down and looked back at it and was like, okay, if I had done it this way, it would have made way more sense. Uh, and one of those things that I can do is reference these player aids that I have. Right. Right. And so and that helps me 
when I'm designing the player aid, it helps me, uh, you know, feel feel out the flow of it. Like, okay, this is how I think the game should be taught. So this is, you know, what I how I should have the order on the player aid and things like that. So, just mm-hmm. ha- just uh, the process of typing out and designing prototyping the player aid just helps helps me with the flow of the game and kind of see myself. Okay, this is how someone who hasn't played the game is going to see it, and and right, the, right. the information they're going to have access to. Here's a question. This has happened to me before. I'm curious if this has happened to you. Have you had a game that you were working on where you started to make the player aid and then not everything would fit? And you're like, this is maybe a little too much. Exactly. <laughs> that's one of the things I was going to bring up. Yes. Yeah. That's another very valuable reason to do a player aid is because when is. you start realizing that, oh, I can't fit everything on this player aid that I want to fit. <laughs> My game has too many rules. I right, right, right. Um, because in my mind, if I can't, if I can't fit it on the player aid or, or the reference card, or the, or the player board, whatever, if it's value, if it's, if I think it's very important information, but I can't figure out or fit it, fit it somewhere, then I need to, in my mind, I need to change the game. That's right. Yeah. You need to, well, yeah. I mean, it, it clearly, if you can't fit it there, it's, it means it's a lot. Right. And obviously that depends on the game. If you're talking about a big Euro style game, it might have a massive player aid, but you know what? That's to be expected because it's a massive game. But if you're making anything that is more, you know, casual side or even, you know, somewhat strategic, you, you, the player aid shouldn't be like crazy. Right. And I, I've noticed um, one of the first ways I started noticing player aids that I thought was really cool. Um, if, if, you know, kind of like, cause like you said, older games, especially didn't have a lot of player aids was not a, were not always a thing. Right. It was like, just right. look back at the rules, which is like, that sucks. So this kind of happy medium I, I saw in a few games um, was that uh, you'd have the rule book, and then on the back of the rule book was basically a large reference sheet for everyone with some specifics on it. And um, while I'd still rather have a player aid in front of me, uh, one of the games that did something like this uh, was Sakatsu, and it was the scoring on the back, like so that you could easily reference during the game when you're counting up what the scoring would be and not everyone needed to have that sitting in front of them. Right. Just having it on that easy spot to see um, was perfect, you know? And so I think that was like a nice way to say, Hey, listen, we don't think there's enough steps that you need a specific thing that explains this to you, but we're going to put this kind of global thing out there for everyone to use as their own, you know, group player aid. Right. And a lot of times too, even if you have a player aid, you know, this is a publisher decision thinking about the back of the rule book, but even if you have a player aid, the back of the rule book is a good place to put information that you can learn quickly. So yeah. Yep. It's information that you have it there and then the fr- you play. And then after five minutes, you, you don't need to keep looking at that information. Anymore. Right, right, right. And I don't, if there's anything I absolutely hate in a game, it's when somebody questions a rule and you have to dive into the rule book to look it up. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another there's other games I've seen where they've done like um, they'll be like, I can't think of the game. Of, there's a game I'm thinking of, but I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. But basically, it's like there's a bunch of, say, buildings that do different things. Probably is a city builder. I'm notorious for playing those. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it lists all the buildings, but then it has reference pages you go to where it gives like a breakout of the full explanation of what it does. Yes. Um, and I thought that that's really cool because. When I'm in the back of the book, like later, I'm just looking at those pages to clarify what something does. I don't have to run through the the nitty gritty of the rule book and all the details to figure out this one little thing that I'm trying to see that maybe didn't fit on a player aid, right? Right. And so you talked about endgame scoring, or you're talking about scoring. I, In my mind, I think, so the two things that I think are really valuable to have in a player aid is the turn structure of the game. What What do I do on my turn? Because that's how you're going to teach the game. This is what you do in mm-hmm. your turn. And that's what players can see. Okay, step one, step two, step three, or four or five, whatever. I'm done. And then the end game scoring. I think end game scoring is very key to have somewhere visible to players. Because that is what helps players make take their turns. It helps, mm-hmm. it, it helps them decide what actions they're going to take. And of course, not every game has end game scoring. But if your game does have end game scoring, it's really valuable to have that right in front of the players in some manner. Yeah. yeah. So they can. So they don't make forget. Their decisions, and, and they'll make their decisions quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. When they don't have to keep asking, hey, what about. 
I had a, a thing where I did a player. I so I did a player aid for this game I'm bringing out called Haphazard Cadabra, which um, I know you listen to the podcast. You probably yeah. heard me talk about it. So yes. so this player aid is just it was meant to show you like if you're using this type of elements if they mix together. Um, and it started off as a big chart. So all of these were separate. They all have their own little separate spot, right? And it was like, if you mix air and fire, you get this. And then on another part of the chart, you'd say, if I mix fire and air, I get that. So I would have to look and say, these are the two things I need. Right. Um, and through some play testing, it was like, okay, no, these can just be together because they're always paired. So I did that. And then um, from there, in just in one game, I think when I was sorting them, it was either myself or my co-designer, Kelly, we were sorting them out. And we started setting the little tokens on the spots, like where the picture was. Right. And suddenly now it became as a player, I go, it's fire and air. And I look and see fire and air. And then I pick up one of each of those tokens and I, and I do what I need to with it. And it was like an accidental, really, really useful player aid that ended also working like as a storage area um, where people always knew where to put stuff back to because before it was awful like when you have the thing because you'd have to look around for it um and that was just happenstance of like hey sort this okay let me sort it this way this is easier and then realizing oh gosh <laughs> this is easier yeah. maybe we should just do this during the game yeah yeah um player player board so a lot of my games use player boards i don't know yeah i love player is, boards but i was looking and i was like why does all of my games use player boards? I don't know why that is. But it's a very common thing for me. Uh, maybe that's my style. I don't know. But um, so I found with player boards, when I'm when I'm designing the player boards, I always try to, you know, keep a spot for the player aid. But also, mm-hmm. that's one of the questions I want to ask as I'm playtesting the game or after the playtest. That's one of the pieces mm-hmm. of feedback I want to get. Uh, I think it's very important to ask your not just ask your playtesters, but watch your playtesters and see how they're interacting. Yep, that's what I was going to say. And with your player boards. Um, so you can see what information are they looking at? What information do they not need to look at? Um, that you kind of have to ask them a lot. Yeah, that and that is something, like you said, watching them during the playtest. I love that when you see them looking at it. The other thing is a designer that I try to do during playtests or even just like with a published game where I'm trying to like, you know, I'm teaching it to new people. Um, when somebody says, Hey Jason, how do I do this? Or how does this interact? I'll go, Oh, I, you know, and I'll, as I start to answer it, I'll point to their player board where it says it like, as if just as if I'm showing them, like, see, here's the icon, here's how it works. But really what I'm doing is reminding them like, Hey, look, you could have answered this question for yourself and I'm more than happy to answer it for you, but I want you to have the ability right. to just know. Right. Yep. Yep. And that, that enforces a habit as well. Uh, it, it helps keep your playtest go quicker if you mm-hmm. if you get in the habit of pointing it out. If you can point it out somewhere, then the next time someone has a question, they'll look on the other person's turn, see the answer, right. and your playtest is going quicker. Then right, know, right, so. right, yeah, because that is, I mean, you know, playtests can take an extra long time just out of you know like a normal play of the game, and if you're trying to get any sense of time for the game, right, you know, keeping that playtest flowing is a big deal. <laughs> You know, yes. um, yeah, I, it, it's, oh, go sorry, ahead. Go no, no, go ahead. Mine's a I, separate I, topic. So, okay. No, I was just thinking, so I kind of am as well, but I was moving on. <laughs> so, um, a buddy of mine has this really long, uh, very, very story driven, uh, game. It's, uh, fighting aliens and everything. It's a super fun game. It's a very mm-hmm. long game. And, um, I point, I, I pointed out to him, like, if you have a player aid for the game, our last session, this was after we play tested it. I said our last session would have been so much shorter because of how many times I had to keep stopping and saying, I don't remember how this system works. Right, right, I'm right. Sorry. And I felt bad, but I was like, I think I think you would have chopped off an hour off the game. I just right. Wow. Yeah, that's a big deal. You know, I mean, I mean this is a long game, so uh, yeah, but still, I mean like percentage even if it's a three hour to four hour game, if you chopped off right. an hour, that's still that's 25%, right? At a four hour yeah. game. That's a lot. Yeah. It, uh, I think sometimes people don't realize just how much time you can save in your game mm-hmm. by, by just having a player. So. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was going to point out was we had talked about like um, how we had both felt the like, oh, there's too much for this player aid. Maybe this is a little too complex. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I was going to say when we were talking about that, that I, I, I forgot was um, cards are the same way. Like when I look back at old de- games that I've designed, 
um, like way back in the day. And they're just like, I've been going as getting prepared for Gen Con. I was like pulling some stuff out of the vault. Like, Hey, this is, you know, I wouldn't mind testing this. I, I was pitching this before I should show this around. And one of them was just like text city. Like everything was like text, text, text. And, and like, and one of the solves for that is, you know, you look for commonalities to say like, do I need all these words or do I need a rule and an icon and a player aid that says this is what the icon means, right? And then if the icon is a sword and it's attack, you put that together pretty quick in your head, right? And it starts to make sense. And so that game, I was like, I don't have time to do that. I'm not going to take it with me. I'm going <laughs> to shoot for like packs or something for that. But, um, but really it does... Um, you know, it, it, it does like all that text it, when it doesn't fit on the card, like that seems like a no brainer. Like, Hey, this is too complicated. Yeah. Um, I think that's another thing where I think older games, right. When we look back at games from even, I would say the early two thousands or so, like, um, you see a lot of games where like the text is just crazy. Even you look at games like smash up that came out like in 2010s right like great game i love smash up but i hadn't played it in a while I, I got the phone edition and i went to read it and i was like whoa there's so much text on these cards like like and it was funny because when i had first had my friend rob uh play it with me he hated it and i was like i don't get it he's like it's just too much and and like when i went to play it on my phone i was like i get it now like it's too much yeah um and it's a game where if you play it multiple times, it doesn't matter. Right. Because you know what the card is. The card tells you what it does. Right. Um, but that first time can really, really slow it down. Um, yes. So, and I think that's exactly what we're talking about here is that sort of, um, you know, too much text or not enough, just easy answers to your questions can super slow it down. And, uh, and that's just not good for the game or the players. Right. Or right. your feedback, because, even if they enjoy the game, it, it's going to overstay its welcome at a point, right? <laughs> and, yeah, so this is uh, slightly off topic, but kind of an anecdote to what you were talking about with the long text on mm -hmm. cards. So um, Agricola is one of my favorite games of all time. I love the game mm -hmm. Agricola. I don't know if you played it, but um, so... A long time ago, yes. But So I play all the time. There's an online site that I play on, and this is also the online site where... Uh, new decks for the game that Lookout Games sends these new decks oh, okay, to, to cool. this site to get playtested. And also some of the player design decks that got published by Lookout and by um, mm -hmm. WizKids. Wiz no, I don't think they did the player design ones, but some of the player design decks as well. And I was, I'm actually a designer of some of the cards of the player design decks. That's so cool. we, when playtesting those, all those cards for Agricola, um, most uh, most players draft the cards before the game, the occupations and improvements. So mm -hmm. when playtesting, one of the things that we noticed on the website was, and what players would even tell you after the game, cards with a lot of text, it didn't matter how good they were. Players, <laughs> players when drafting, didn't want to read that card to see how good it was. And so right. we didn't notice it till all of a sudden we're like, why are all these good cards getting drafted so late in the game? Players don't, what, what's going on? What, are these cards weaker than we think? We're trying to figure out the balance and everything. And then we realized all it was was just, it had so much text. Players didn't want to read that when they're drafting cards. They feel yeah. like they're slowing everybody down. So they're just, I don't want to read through all that one. I'll just pass that one. And yep. it's, which is, I thought was a really interesting phenomenon to see. And maybe, it is. well, I think I need to make sure when I design games that I don't have a lot of text there. And I do think that I think that most publishers for most newer games nowadays, that's just going to be a thing, right? Like right. they're going to push back to remove that right. um, because they I mean, it's you know, we, we talk so much about accessibility in games and and that really is that really hurts accessibility. Right. Um, when it comes to. Um, like when it comes to new players or pe or, you know, when you're trying to loop in the casual people that really can be a stopping block. Right. No, no one wants to feel dumb or feel like they're out of place. So, so that, that's the type of thing that sometimes when having a lot of text, if someone takes the time to read it, which is just natural, that doesn't, you know, that's just normal. Right. right. But they're going to, you know, they might feel, uh, they might feel out of place with it and you don't, you don't want someone to have that feeling when they're playing your game. So. 
Right. Well, and the other thing to remember is that, you know, in a game like Smash Up or, you know, possibly these cards in Agricola, like, you're not the only player that reads it. Once it hits the table, yes. everyone has to give a crap about it. Right. If it has, you know, and even if they don't have to give a crap about it, when you play it, you're going to have to tell people what it did. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would challenge game designers, if you have a first version of your game and it has, you know, a lot of text on cards or something, which in a first version, like a first draft, like, that's you know bound to happen i mean i'm usually very verbose in the beginning and then i try to trim it down as i start to develop keywords and stuff to really try to make it easier um but i would say listen to what your players how your players describe it right as they're using it and steal their words right (laughs) like you know yeah Um, that's a really good idea and on that same thing you know and you you said this earlier but like I, i believe but as a reminder like listen to the questions your players ask. Like if you've got a player aid and people are still asking questions, if you, if they're asking questions on the player aid, I think you have one of two issues. You either have a person who's not going to look at the player aid or you have a player aid. That's just not nearly as usable as you think it is. Right. Yep. Um, but the other thing is listen for questions that aren't showing up on that player aid and ask yourself then like, should this be on the player aid or is this something that, is a problem, you know, and that's why people aren't getting it. Cause obviously I think it can go either way, right? Like some things in games player eight or not, they just don't click for gamers, you know? And And that's okay. (laughs) Usually, usually they are correct when that is the case. Yes. Yeah. Um, so something else. So you brought up how you looked at one of your older designs and it had a lot of text and cards. You were talking about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I really like having reference cards or player age or something on the player board or whatever is because I don't write rules for my prototypes. Uh, I hate doing (laughs) rules. So, um, and this is probably not a good idea. This is not a suggestion, but, um, I don't do the rules for my games until, it, the publisher asked to see the rules. <laughs> that's that's when I do the rulebook. Um, mm-hmm. For me, because I hate writing rules, but also if I start writing rules, I always feel like I'm wasting my time because I, then I have to change the, the then not only after a play test do I have to change right, the right. cards. Now right. I got to go change the rules, or I got to change the board, but also have to change the rules. And I just got too frustrated with that. Um, so I just I don't do rules. So, but because I do really a lot of player aids and reference cards, I can go back to games. I just, you know, I worked on eight years ago, pull them out of on my computer and I know how to play, even though there's no rules for the games because I can, right. see, I can see right. how to play. Um, again, I'm not saying that's a good standard practice, but no, but I uh, think if that, you're the I type mean, of person that doesn't do rules, player aids are really good. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's not a good practice. However, there are those people um, who, and I sometimes can be one of them who just desperately don't want to write the rules um, so, hey, why not do something that's going to make your game play better and then give you some, you know, some hints along the way? I mean, literally, it may be just you're giving yourself hints. You're like, you know, memento style trying to figure out what the hell you were doing. But still, it's something right. Right. I for me, writing rules just as a quick aside, because um, I, I don't like writing rules in general. Um, but what I I make play raids and stuff, but I find that I will very much not remember how the game plays six months from now, two weeks from now, if, if I haven't played it. So, and I don't tend to be able to get good play tests in immediately. So like when my friend Kelly was here and we were doing him and I were doing fast, like iterate, iterative design, like very fast. Mm-hmm. We didn't write the rules for a week, right. um, but we probably did 10 plus play tests in that week. And then we said, okay, this is how the game works he was getting ready to travel back to home. And I said, let's write these rules so that we know like how to play it. And we can start to show it to people. Um, Because I, the, uh, the other issue I have is like when I, if I don't have the rules written and I'm play testing it to groups of people at a convention, then when I come back and I've got their ideas written down, like, especially if, like, midway through, a, like, you know, you're going to do, like, five playtests of it at, like, an unpub or something where you're going to really hammer it through. I will sometimes struggle to say, how did it work originally? Because, like, now it's working swimmingly, but, like, how was it working originally? And sometimes that matters for, like, trying to make things blink up, if like, on a player aid or even just with the rules if you're having issues. Um, 
so so yeah so i i have tried to be better about writing rules i used to very much be like you though and was like i'm never writing rules plus it, it felt like a part of design that was a waste of time if the game never moved forward right like it, i really understand what you're saying when you say it feels like a waste of time because it does and going back and editing rules is awful i hate it that is my least favorite part about rules is having to go back and say oh this changed and it changed this but um but yeah. for myself i'm better off writing them <laughs> and and i will say i, I kind of got uh i kind of got bit on this as well because um so for free radicals um my game that got published in um last year yeah yeah. when we when we were working on the rules and going through it um there was one particular rule that i realized was very very hard to write (laughs) and i hate that in my mind i knew there was a solution like i felt like oh I can just not have that rule and do this in the game instead. But we were long past development at that point, And it was, it, I didn't have time to play test it. This right, change. right. So in my mind, I'm like, I know I can get rid of that rule and just do this. And the game is going to be okay. But we were just too late to do anything. So we had to put this very, right, very convoluted right. one little tiny rule for one of the factions in there. And, um, I felt bad about that. I'm like, yeah, if I'd have just written everything, if I had taken the time and written the rules, you know, a lot earlier, than <laughs> that, myself, right, right. that this takes way too much time to explain because verbally it doesn't take any time at all. So when I'm teaching the right. game, it's one of those things that's really right. easy to explain verbally, but you start to write it down, you realize, oh, this is really hard to explain. That's so one of the, I think this is a, this is actually a great thing to bring up. Um, you know, player aids generally, at least in my opinion, a good player aid is going to have some pictures or some icons, right? generally icons it's probably not going to have like a big picture with graphics and stuff but like it'll have some icons and some definitions and stuff um or maybe it'll show like a little picture like i picture like player aids where i've seen it shows how movement works in the game right Right. so like just to remind you like right in front of you how movement works um but uh i find in the rules that like truly a picture is worth a thousand words so if i start to have trouble explaining something i just put a picture in with some arrows and stuff and then find that that generally makes it easier to get what I'm because I'm a visual person. So like I can picture it, but I can't explain it. Um, but uh, so here's an interesting thing that happened to me with trying to write rules. Also, I'd like to point out that while we're doing this, I saw a notification pop up from our BTG discord where Clarence Simpson was saying, I'm having trouble saying this in rules. Like, and he's asking questions. So like, this is a typical problem that we all have. Yes. Um, I was having a real hard time um, with um, my game. Opposite is opposite, which is just a word game. I was trying, I was having a hard time explaining how many people should do this action because it needs to be, an, essentially it needs to be an odd number of people. Right. But like there's the person who starts the action and then there are the other people that do it. And then there's these people that guess. And it was hard to like, I didn't want to have to say like the starter, the writers, the guessers. Like I just didn't want to have to do that. And I was trying and trying and couldn't figure out how to write it. And I finally just posted on our Discord. Like, does anybody have like 10 minutes to where I could try and figure this out? And, and sure enough, like three people jumped online with me right away. One of those was Jonathan Chaffer. Um, and Jonathan had this idea where he said, like, explain the rule to me. So I explained it to him and he said, don't write that rule or, you know, write it simply just say this number of people. He said, but what you do is you just for, you just make components and use those basically as a player aid, right? Which is you make the number of components necessary to do the right thing with like in a in this game right so like you need x number of people to do it you only make that many of the things and then just say give them to this person and all the people to their left and boom that's how you do it and i was like oh crap like like literally i don't have to explain it now i just say give the cards to these people and they know what to do right and then you can say anyone with a card do x right that's really and it was so much simpler um so that was like that was a that was kind of like broke my brain in thinking about how like oh i don't have to write this rule i just have to make it so this is what the players will just do with the with the with the components they're given um you know so yeah that that was really cool yeah 
that's a really really good clever thing to do is use the components one um in a similar manner so one of the games my co-designer and i work on which we kind of it doesn't have this rule anymore but one of the weird things of the game that helped balance it is at the end of the game you converted your money into victory points at a ratio mm-hmm. of five five dollars was two victory points it weren't okay. dumb, but whatever which is yeah, a really mean, yeah. weird ratio um but that was the best way for the game to have balance right, right it was just we put it on the player aid we put it on the board we put it places and it was just still really weird for players finally what we ended up doing is i just took a bunch of poker chips and i would put i put five dollars on one side and i put two vp on the other side and i said at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the game convert all your money to five dollar coins and then they just flip over the coins and that's how much vp they have and it's just real simple and after nice. that now again we the game doesn't even do that anymore but that was a solution right, that right. was like oh why didn't we think of this sooner this is really obvious just mm-hmm. put it right on the components and then they could figure it out yeah yeah that's one of the things we did with our um game super robo country jonathan and i um we did double-sided player aids where one side explains this is how you take a turn and the other side ex- is all of the different things you might run into in this in this board you're moving through and what it means to you and what to do about it. And it's mostly icons. It's like, if you see this, you need this to avoid this. If you see this, you need this to avoid that. This does this. This does that. Right. And what was nice about that was it means they only have one player aid. But after the because after the first couple turns in a fairly simple game, right, that turn order player aid is not what you're looking at right right but when there's a bunch of icons on the board that i only see sometimes i'm going to ask about those the entire sinking game so that ability to go back and forth really made a difference for people and it saved us you know a chunk of cardboard and taking up box space that wasn't going to be you know assisting anyone really exactly yep yep um yeah there's there's just so many things um that having good player aids and good reference cards can do for players that just make the game more enjoyable, I think, is the thing. Like The big thing is it's more enjoyable because it's easier to play, it's easier to understand, you have less questions. I think you just, as a player, you feel more empowered, right? Because right. you can solve these problems. You don't have to keep asking someone. I think from an accessibility standpoint, it shines in the fact that it does make it easy for someone to be able to figure it out themselves. So they don't have to feel feel like they're asking stupid questions, right? Because they don't have to ask questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's helpful when giving feedback as well, because a lot of times the player aid will name the phases of the turn or the phases of the round or whatever. And a lot, sometimes those phases aren't, words that you're using during the game or keywords you're going to remember. Right. So when it comes time to give feedback, you're like, hey, when we do the one thing where you did the the one thing, you can just point to player aid. Oh, when I do the setup phase or the you right. know, release right. phase yeah. or whatever, and it's it just the helps. five to two phase. Yeah, when, when you're explaining, when you're trying to give feedback to, to the designer, right, right, right. reference specific names of things on, on the player aid, that helps a little bit as well. That's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I um, I was trying to think of any other you know pieces of advice. I, I think that you know something. I don't know that we um, specifically said this, but you know, we're talking about too much text on cards. Um, I think you want to make sure that even if all the text fits on your player aid, it could still be too much, right? right? Yep. Like if somebody has to, you know, be reading a novel on your player aid, they're just not going to do it. They're going to ask questions, right? Or they're going to do it, and then it's going to take so much time for them to do it, right? You know, it's like the thing you're saying with Agricola, where they're literally avoiding good cards because they're like, I can't be bothered to read this. Like, give me a TLDR. Come on. That yeah. really is the right player aids. They, the player aids are TLDR, right? That's the yeah. whole point, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You got to make it easy and understandable. Otherwise, it's pointless. Awesome. Any other thoughts you have you want to throw out there on this? Um, I don't think so. Um, I made a little bit of some notes and stuff, so I'm looking over. I think I covered everything that I kind of had thought of. 
Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I certainly can't think of anything we didn't hit with this. I think that, uh, you know, I, you know, one of the things is I, I think that, um, I like to, when I'm working on player aids sometimes or, or just specific components and stuff where they're going to be, people are going to be looking at them and have to decipher things from them. I'll share them to our discord or whatever design group you use. Don't be afraid to share those things with people and just say like, Hey, you know, what does this make you think? We had, um, Connor wake one time was like, Hey, here's a bunch of symbols. Tell me what you think they mean. Like that was like, was like, tell me what you think I'm supposed to do when you see this. Um, and some of them were spot on and other ones was like, nope, nope, that makes no sense. Like you, you were not, you did not assume what I thought you would. Uh, so clearly that needs to be more you know, specific because even though you can tell people what they mean, um, you know, making it more specific and more easily discernible is great. And you can go to places like gameicon.net, the noun project to get really good, simple, free iconography, free for, you know, for personal use. Uh, for um, for public use, the um, noun project is so cheap. It's like less, I think, than a hundred dollars a year, and um, and I I'm a member because I use their stuff for so much. Um, and even if I wasn't using any of it commercially, I think I'd still would be a member just because I want to support it because it's just got so much, and the files are easy to work with and easy to do stuff with. Um, yeah, I yeah. use I use GameIcons.net a lot, and in fact, <laughs> me too. I, I use it so much that I'll bring out a game and then my playtest will be like, oh, I've seen this game before. I'm like, no, you've just seen these icons. Like, <laughs> icons for every game. Right, right, right. <laughs> One of the things that I love about GameIcons.net is you have the ability to just download all of them. Yeah. Like you can just literally download the whole thing. Yeah. Though a lot of times it's quicker than like Photoshop or Illustrator if you want to color things right. within it yeah. and I'll just yeah. color it right in color there. It within there. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. And that's a really nice ability to have. Yeah. Um, especially for somebody who's not super keen on using a Photoshop or an illustrator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, yeah, that's, that's great. Highly recommend that. Um, I did run into that issue where I was using the same ones a lot. Um, I found what I like about noun project, and this is kind of how I was tempted to go over to start using noun project more was somebody said, you know, there's a lot of these like sets where you can be like, I want an animal token for instance and then you can search for a specific animal find it and then click on a set and it say it was like farm animals right and there'll be 20 different farm animals all drawn by the same person they look like they go together they just kind of gel it looks good um and that that's really nice um but player aids player aids is i think what i'm saying here are something to spend time on like that is you know um people say like working on graphic design is not working on your game but this is an instance where it absolutely is because y- you want those things to be discernible and recognizable. And like you said, it'll save you so much time in the future putting that effort in. Right. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Well, um, you uh, have a game you're going to pitch to us. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to let you do that. Okay. So um, I changed my mind. I was talking to you before the program about two different ones. And I'm going to go with the other <laughs> one. So, um, just because it's cool. so fresh in my mind, I, I've been sure. Yeah, it sounds great, morning, and it's just so fresh. I, I think I think this is the one I want to talk about. So, um, so I have a game called Incredible Journey. Um, also, I'm horrible at titles, so um, anyway, that's the title right now. But it's uh, it's an abstract game where you have seven uh, pets. And the object of the game is to get your pets. There's a hex map, grid map, and your object of the game is to get your pets from where they are from the start to the end. Um, You're trying to get your pets home. And uh, how the game works is uh, similar to Tiny Towns. Uh, It's a community type game like that. So everybody has their own board with an identical map and identical pets on the map. But the hexes, there are seven different colored hexes. And so um, one player will flip over a card. There's a deck of cards, and the cards just have a color of a hex on it. So a player will flip over a card. It'll be like yellow hex. And then each player will simultaneously decide if they want to move the yellow animal, the canary, let's mm. say, or the an- an animal that is currently on a yellow hex. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And each animal has a unique way of moving. 
So like the canary, mm -hmm. for example, can move, can fly over other animals, can move three spaces, which is really far comparatively, but they all have to be different directions. So, um, so it effectively ends up only being about two spaces, depending on how the map goes, unless you're going around a corner or something. Um, and then you have the dog. With the, the, so if you flip over the brown, you can move the brown dog or you can move an animal in the brown space. And that's, I mean, that's the game. I just explained, that's the whole game. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the, the interesting part, of course, it comes when um, you start going through the deck of cards and there's some wild cards in there. So anybody, every player can individually pick which animal they want to move. Mm -hmm. And so... The first couple turns, sometimes players are kind of mimicking each other, but then, of course, the decision tree just keeps branching out and out and out as you have more and more of things. Well, do I want to move the red animal or the animal in the red space, the brown animal mm -hmm. or the animal in the brown space? And then uh, as those players make those decisions and it gets uh, it moves outward, um, it's, it's it, the decision space really expands. It's a really fun game, I found, um, for families, but... I, but uh, the trick with that is it does have a fairly high onboarding um, because you you have to learn seven different animal movements mm -hmm. to start the game. Sounds um, like you could use some play raids. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, and and uh, obviously another big help with that is to try to tie in the animal movements to the animal. Yeah, yeah. Um, theme justifying mechanics right there yeah, is key. Yeah, so um, really trying to integrate, okay, how would – it's not really so much how do you, how would this animal be expected to move because the animals don't move on a hex grid in general. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's how, you know, if I put this movement, does that make sense for players? Right, right. Uh, and absolutely. Some are, yeah. some are pretty obvious. Okay, the rabbit, the white rabbit, it jumps over other animals. It's a rabbit. Mm -hmm. You know, that it jumps. That's pretty basic. Um, and uh, so – Anyway, so what happened is I had this I had this game, um, started pitching it to publishers, um, and uh, got some good feedback, but uh, didn't really go anywhere. Well, then, just last week I play tested it with my normal playtest group, and I've now expanded it. So I have several different maps, um, and I also have two mm -hmm. different sets of animals. Oh, okay, so yeah. You could play. You could play two different two different sets of animals. Um, one of the issues, not issues. So what happened because the different animals move different ways? There are some animals that having them in the game with other with their movement combined with other animals' movements mm -hmm. makes the game flow. The game the game kind of goes too slow if you don't have certain animals that can help move other animals and things like that tortoise and turtle don't put right. those together yeah obviously yes but like <laughs> just just for the movement as well so like um the horse can pull another animal okay uh, yeah, so yeah, having yeah. there's there's animals in the game the spider scares other animals so there's certain animals in the game with that when they move it helps other animals move and those are important to keep the game going quicker having a certain number nice, of those in nice. the game. so what happened is i had two different sets and I, the sets were balanced amongst themselves. So um, if you're playing with a set, and there were eight animals at this point. So if you're playing with eight animals, and I'm playing with the same eight animals, the game goes fine. And then if we switch and go to the other set of eight animals, and we're playing with the same animals, the game goes fine. Anyway, so it was, all, it was all going okay, going smooth, but a couple minor things. So after the play test, I thought, crazy idea. Can I, so, because the whole game is just a person flips over a card with a color on it. There's mm -hmm. another game where a player just flips over a card with a color on it that's really popular. It's called Candyland. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've, I have heard of it, yes. <laughs> so, I thought, is there, is there any way I could, like, make this game something like Candyland? And, uh, or theme it around Candyland, any, whatever, blah, 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 blah. So, I come home from playtesting last week. And I'm like, the next day I just start frantically like re-theming everything, trying to find the different uh, Candyland IP, you know, <laughs> the, all this, whatever. And maybe I could pitch this to Hasbro, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So as I'm doing this, I realize, okay, that's that's a bad idea. Really dumb idea. And uh, for several reasons. First of all, the people that are interested in the Candyland, the people that look at a game themed around Candyland are not going to want to play an abstract for... 10 you know ages 10 plus right uh that's just not right. the audience 
really bad ideas. However, as I was doing that, I started realizing that there was a lot of things that were good about the redesign that I really liked. Uh, okay. So one of the things when I started redesigning, I was like, well, I can't have eight animals. That's just too many. I'll cut it down to six. And I didn't really like the space with six, but I did like, but I realized, oh, I need to just have seven. Eight's too many. I can cut it down to seven and the game is still great. So mm-hmm. that was the first thing. I also realized when I was trying to theme it Candyland theme that the, uh, so for example, the horse and the comparative color in the other set of animals, the, when they were animals, they didn't match up. The, the horse was mm-hmm. an animal that pulled and could move other animals, but the comparative one that matched that color wasn't an animal that affected other animals, so you couldn't mix and match at all. You had to play set A or set B. There was no mix and match. Well, with Candyland, I, I wasn't restricted because there was really no thematic connection at all between the movement and, like, how kings mm-hmm. moves, right? So I realized having no thematic connection is bad, so I don't want to do that. So I'm going back to the animals. But having that mix and match was really good. It helped. It gave a lot more variability to the game. Okay, and, okay. Sorry, taking a drink. And it helped. Um, it just it, it made more sense to players. Like, oh, I can just mix and match these cards. Here's the, Here's the... The yellow animals you can play with, pick whatever yellow animal you want. Here's the red animals to play with, pick whatever red animal you want. And so mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I really want to go back. And I really want to keep that. And so I ended up cutting cutting one animal, so only had seven, which meant I had two extra animals. And then I thought, well, I can maybe come up with five more actions, and I can have a deck of three animals to choose from for each color, mm-hmm. and I can align them so they all work on the map there's always going to be one animal that's really good at moving fast there's always one animal that can help other animals move there's always one animal that uh might be a little bit more challenged to work with etc i always have a same set i can i know that the players always have those sets and um anyways i'm really excited with how that worked out i was able to come up with the the different animals have three sets Mm -hmm. and um playing it and everything so it's anyway I'm really excited about that. So. That's fantastic. Uh, next time we see each other, I would love to try that. Um, the uh, I love the simple movement that clearly would make for some really interesting decisions. Um, so since you mentioned an IP, three IPs I'm going to throw at you. Okay. I think are good. Are, are, are I, well, I'm not going to say good. Are IPs that would fit this game. Okay. One, Homeward Bound. First one I thought of. Get that old Homeward Bound IP. Two, this is actually probably the strongest one, a game like like a theme like Madagascar, like the movie Madagascar, right? It's all about animals yeah. trying to escape and get somewhere, um, liked by adults as well. You could have a game that was, you know, eight plus that could work with that. Yeah. Um, and then finally, a bad idea that I really love, Goodnight Gorilla. The uh, the book, you know, have you've you've got kids, right? You've read the book, right? The Goodnight Gorilla, where like the gorilla, uh, the zookeeper locks up everyone in the zoo, but then oh, the gorilla right. goes behind unlocking everyone, yeah. and then everybody sneaks into the bedroom at the end. Um, <laughs> those are the three things that popped into my head. Um, but honestly, like, reach out to somebody with a Madagascar theme. Like, I think that yeah. would be really cool. Like, that really I kind of fits. Really like that, and that's. I really like that idea, actually, the Madagascar theme, and I, and um and that might be and that might be really what the game needs, um. Uh, just some kind of IP to help help propel it. So the the, the so Incredible Journey actually is a name I think tied to the Homeward Bound IP, but I'm not positive on that. It might actually be Homeward Bound: The Incredible Journey. I right. actually it's something it might like that. Be that. So I thought I thought about that. Now Homeward Bound only has three animals, so. But, right, right, right. But, that was the vibe I immediately got though yeah. when you said the animals. It, like that was the first thing. And that's um, that's kind of I mean that's the feeling of the game is okay. You got all these animals. You got to get them across the the map and and get them home. And you know it's literally person, called Homeward Bound: The Incredible Journey. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Hundred yeah. um, percent. You were absolutely right. So. Yeah, so that's that was my original thought for the game was that's kind of what you're doing is you're trying to get, trying to get everybody, you know, trying to get your animals home, similar to Homeward. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I like the Madagascar idea. That's I've never, I, 
that's it's making me think. It's making me yeah, think. just thought I would throw it out there um, as a cool uh, as a cool thought. And take it or leave it. So yeah. <laughs> and so so right now, all of the animals are pet pet animal animals you could have as pets, with the exception of one, the orangutan. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know that many people have a pet orangutan, but. Yeah, frowned upon in general. <laughs> but it's I have it in the game for two reasons. First of all, I need another orange pet. <laughs> and secondly, its ability is to throw and it, it it gets to pick up another animal next to it and throw it two spaces, which is such a fun ability. Everybody loves that ability. And um just having my orangutan throw my dog over there and that. <laughs> uh but I mean, the first thing I think of when you say orangutan throwing something is is poop. Just for the uh, for the record, like but... fair enough. Yes, yes. Uh, anyway, so that's incredible journey. Um, real excited about that. I'm actually going. Um, yeah, I think I told you I'm going to a convention, uh, DaveCon. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, I'll be playtesting that and some other stuff too up there. So awesome! Yeah, no, I would really love to try that one at some point. That that sounds right up my alley for the type of like casual, uh, yeah, you know, some strategy thing that my family would be pretty stoked about trying. So for sure. Yeah, I've gotten to playtest it with uh, several of my non-gamer friends and 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 their families and they it seems like a good hit with them excellent excellent well hey man this was really fun i appreciate you coming on and chatting about this these were um yeah this was this was a fun very not boring topic Uh, okay good (laughs) i was excited about it and this was uh i feel like we we had some really good discussions and um you know for all the the discord people out there i would love to hear back from what you thought about it um usually we have a pretty good discussion in the show feedback section where people will uh, throw out um, ideas and stuff and their thoughts on it. So yeah, I look forward to hearing good. the conversation on this. We have several people who are very good at graphic design in our discord. So I'm always interested in their opinions on this sort of stuff too. So. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed, um, hope you enjoyed the show and uh, the topic here. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to buildinggamepodcast.com. There you can find a link to our Discord that I talked about. Uh, we have great hangouts there. You should hang out with us. Um, also, you can email us at buildinggamepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and Nathan, what is the best way for people to uh, to get in touch with you if, if, if they would like to? Um, I am on Twitter for the moment uh, at Nate Wall, N-A-T-W-O-L-L. And then also, I'm really active on Facebook. So most of the board game design groups on Facebook, uh, Nathan Wall, um, you'll find me there. And I try to be active and um, help when I can. And uh, so that's another way. And also on BGG, I do have a designer mm-hmm. profile. So you can message me on BGG as well. I've, I've been trying to be better about going to BGG. I went and there was a message for me and I was like, Oh gosh, how old? And it was a couple months old. And the person was like, Hey, there's this game you have. I can't find it anywhere. I would like to buy a copy of it. And I was like, Oh man. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. It took me so long to get back to you. Like, I really need to be better. Like I have to set myself a weekly reminder, like check BGG, like just log in. I'm, I'm, I know a lot of people have their problems with it. I, I still love BGG. I, I'm on there every day. Oh no. I mean, I, I would love to use it more. I just, I tend to just mostly use our discord because that's where everyone I know we chat. And then like BGG, I use as a resource all the time. I just, you don't have to log in to use it as a resource, which is good, but bad for me. (laughs) It would be better if it was like, I could click a setting that said, you can't search this without logging in. (laughs) I I struggle with discord. I, 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 I have not found a way to use it in a way that I, yep. I can't figure out how to do it. You've described me with several. I mean, I tried Slack um microsoft teams several other things and i hated every single one discord just i actually tried discord the first time and hated it i didn't hate it but it just didn't click for me and then i installed the desktop version of it so that i actually have it open while i'm working during the day yeah um and that made a difference for me i'm still not nearly as active as as i could be um but it really does uh it really it that's made a difference for me and uh uh, I just it helps me keep focused on design and stuff, but uh, I will never try and bully anyone into using more social stuff because 
it's tough. Like there's a lot of it. It's tough. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people really like it. I, I'll keep trying, but it's, it's hard for me. Oh yeah. No pressure. No pressure. And I use Facebook quite a bit as well. Um, and look at some design stuff on there too. That's, that's kind of like my hub for how I keep in contact with everyone. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I know a lot of people who don't like to be on Facebook and I, I try to be on it as little as possible, like doing anything, but interacting with the people I want to interact with. Right. <laughs> exactly. So awesome. Well, Hey, thanks again, man. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, I uh, hope it was really helpful. I, I really enjoyed myself. So awesome. Awesome. Appreciate it. And uh, listeners, uh, as you know, the single best way to keep uh, track of what we're doing here is to come back every single week. But until next time, good night. Good night. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. The end of the episode, that's when it technically ends.